We're thrilled to have you. Preston City Bible Church is a little church with a great big heart. And the heart of our attention, the very, uh, dominate, what dominates our focus, um, the, what has captivated us more than anything else, uh, far and away more than anything else, is the Lord Jesus Christ. We've assembled today for fellowship in the most solemn phase of Christian worship, which is the Lord's table, an ordinance, a command Jesus gave us that we would do this in remembrance of Him. Here at Preston City Bible Church, we take it very seriously. What we have in the New Testament about the Lord's table is uh, fairly explicit. For example, we should do this in a worthy manner. This represents fellowship with God. Fellowship with God. So we come to fellowship together with God in a worthy manner, like as in we're in fellowship or having fellowship with Him. And personal sin will distort, will, will uh, disrupt that fellowship. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul teaches that this is a serious problem for the church in Corinth, that they have uh, done this in an, an unworthy manner. They have come to the Lord's table uh, and not for sure been in fellowship with God. They're in, in gross personal sin. They're getting drunk with the wine of communion. Uh, they are perhaps uh, coming to gorge themselves and people are getting there early to eat all the bread and drink all the wine before everyone comes together. And there's a serious problem in Corinth. That's never been a problem here at Preston City Bible Church, uh, as far as I uh, can tell, and it may be because we use grape juice. But um, we don't do this, no, we, we don't do this in an unworthy manner because we take it very seriously. The Lord Jesus Christ gave His church two ordinances, two commands that would then become rituals that would portray the inner spiritual reality of who and what Christ is and what we've done about who and what Christ is. And what we do uh, when we become a new believer is we, we're, we become baptized. We obey the command of the Lord Jesus to baptize all the nations in, in the effort of making them disciples. Make disciples by baptizing them into the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. And make disciples by teaching them to keep or to remember to obey all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you even to the end of the age. Is the marching orders Jesus Christ gave his church. That's baptism and then teaching. And then one of the teaching illustrations like water baptism, which is a physical ritual that portrays the inner spiritual reality. This is the same thing. This is a physical ritual of bread and cup that, that portray the inner reality of our faith in Jesus Christ. And we're very careful about who Jesus Christ is. He is not a person who was created by God with divine perfections. He isn't someone who had a beginning under the eternal God. He is God the Son. And that's why bread, the bread of heaven, is portraying the incarnation, the fact that the Lord Jesus is, has come in the flesh. And that's why he says, what did he say? This is my body. Now God, Yahweh, the creator of the universe, is now within his creation. He has taken on flesh. That's the doctrine that you are believing as you take the bread or you're portraying your faith in Christ. The unique person of the universe. Undiminished deity and true humanity in one person forever. And the historic language is the hypostatic union. I really love theology. I hope you know what that means. It means that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. He is fully divine and fully human. And that union of essences or natures into one person, divine and human nature, is the mystery of the incarnation. This is my body 
this is my body makes us remember God now has flesh. God the Son, the second person, has taken on flesh. And that is something to ponder. In fact, that might be something for you to think about in remembrance as you consider the bread today. What is the cup? He says, this is my blood. This is my blood. And by the way, all the blood was in his body when he said it, and all his flesh was complete when he said that too about, his, about the, the bread. So the idea that he somehow became part of the bread or part of the cup, uh, I think goes beyond what Jesus has actually said in John 6 or elsewhere. What we're saying is that you have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the right one, the God-man who died for your sins on the cross. That's the gospel, and that's what we're always consistently taking on faith that Jesus has come in the flesh and he did so to die for our sins on the cross. And that's the cup. The cup is the death that Jesus died to satisfy the infinite righteousness of God as it must deal with our personal sin. We, like sheep, have gone astray and God has placed our iniquity on his son. Our sin has been judged in Jesus Christ and that judgment, that judgment of Christ is called his death for our sins this is the death that christ died where he screams under the darkness of of the of golgotha when jesus is on the cross my god my god why have you forsaken me that's the answer in judgment the father is forsaking the son and there's a mystery in this too the lord's table is a great mystery it is a a couple of very very deep mysteries that the more you come to think about it, the more you think you've got and you finally figured it out and you have a grasp of it. Besides just the ability to articulate it, to really feel like we fully understand it, uh, you're probably going to find yourself in some sort of heresy. That's what's happened. All the bad ideas that have been foisted upon the gospel through church history have come about from people well, well intended to say, oh, well, I figured out how it works. Let me give you an example. This is not what we believe, Okay. This is not what we believe. We don't believe that we have one God. And since there's only one, it has to be one person. So one person who has different manifestations in different phases of history. We don't believe that, well, in the Old Testament, you see the Father. But then in the Gospels, he came as the Son. And then in the New Testament, after the Son went, to whom we can't say after this, but he went to heaven. Now, uh, the Spirit it's now God shows up as the Spirit. Different manifestations. That's, that's an ancient good idea. That's a heresy. It denies the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it cannot be squared with the Scriptures. You know why? Because the Father is judging His Son on the cross. Two different persons. One God, three persons. You can't do this one God, one person business with the Bible. You can say, well, the Bible doesn't make sense. You can, you can say that. Uh, you can't say it by the Spirit. When the power of the Spirit, you can't say that. But you can say that. The Bible doesn't make sense, so I'll make my own sense of it. But that ancient heresy is called modalism, different modes. And, it, and the idea was that God shows up with different personas or different masks. And that's the way we understand Trinity. No. No. You, if you think that, that that makes more sense, you haven't yet read what the Scriptures say. And so I'm not here to spend the day on modalism but i would show you that we we are very careful with how we articulate what we believe what has been the confession of the church of jesus christ for two thousand years and we know because we got it from the apostles of jesus christ under whom we continue to walk 
worthy of our calling. We are apostolic because we're listening to the New Testament from the apostles. And what one of them wrote to us in Matthew chapter 6 was Jesus said, do this in Matthew 26. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Another apostle of Jesus said, that's right. We do this in remembrance of him. That's Paul, 1 Corinthians 11. So we're very careful to do that. Uh, A couple of thoughts for you to ponder as you prayerfully consider what Jesus Christ has done for you, who he is and what he's done today with the bread and the cup. I want to give you a moment for silent prayer. As Paul says, if you do this in an unworthy manner, this is a cause for judgment that we bring upon ourselves. Uh, When you're not walking with God in the light as he himself is in the light, when you have slipped into some sort of personal sin, like uh, arrogance, thinking more highly of yourself than you ought to think, you know, the ones that we actually know that we're guilty of, like envy or jealousy, those things that nobody knows but you and God, because no one's in your head but you. Those ideas of self-righteousness where you're better than the other person because after all, it's you. These church friendly sins that destroy your soul that nobody knows you're doing but you're just as dark and and sinful as the next uh, as an unbeliever at times Um, these sins will destroy you and they render you fruitless at the lord's table i'd say that's an unworthy manner and i wouldn't want you to come under a judgment from god for breaking his illustration but god knows And so do you. So I always give you a moment for silent prayer, for this self-assessment. The Apostle says, judge yourself and you won't be judged. So judge yourself. Pastor Dave is not going to judge you. Nobody here is here to judge you. The Lord Jesus Christ is your judge. So take what he's told you. Go to God the Father in prayer in the name of the Son and the power of the Holy Spirit and tell him if you have any unconfessed sins that are apparent to you. Maybe you're in the middle of a lifestyle sin that you're doing right now and you're still there. Maybe your clothes are still under the wrong bed. I don't know. God knows. But I'll tell you right now, don't do this if you're going to do that. Don't do this if you're going to be living counter to fellowship with God. Don't say, here I proclaim the death of Christ in fellowship with him. It's a lie. And that's a judgment to you. We need to stop whatever it is. We need to put it before God. We need to confess it and receive the cleansing according to 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'll give you a moment for silent prayer. Heavenly Father, as uh, your son has told the Apostle Paul, your grace is sufficient for us. Your power is made complete in our weakness, and now we come to you humble, weak, aware of our poverty. Father, the poor in spirit will be made rich. We come to you hungry, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, Father. We come to you desiring what you would provide for us as we depend on your spirit. And now we ask fervently, God, give us capacity to concentrate. Help us recall the things we know and believe about your Son. Let this truly, in our hearts and in our community, be a proclamation of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as we anticipate his return. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Whosoever will serve, please come forth. Help me out. So uh, I'm going to ask Gary Smith to give thanks for the bread. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we rejoice and household to household to gather together as you've commanded in the scriptures. We remember the 
following that, um, Christ's birth, death, burial, and resurrection, we look back in memory of the, the bread as we think about you uh, bringing Jesus to us and the Virgin Mary and the incarnate Christ, uh, God-man, that he was both equal, but he set aside his deity to grow up as a young child and get into a man and serve you uh, in a sinless nature, Father. Having lived this 33 years without sin, Father, it's an example for us to look back and know that uh, we can't do that. We never were qualified to do that. No man other than Jesus has been able to because you <coughs> brought him to us this way, Father, and we uh, executed your will perfectly. We ask, Father, we'd remember this and look back in uh, psalm awareness, and we look forward to your blessings on this bread and this time together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As you probably know, we will wait on one another till all have been served. So when, when Paul said to the Corinthians, you know, wait for one another, they were showing up before the assembly and someone had laid out the bread and people would get there for the Lord's table and it was all eaten. And so we, we illustrate this in, in commemoration of, of our awareness of one another that we wait until we've actually all been served before we eat. We actually all eat at the same moment here. And the reason we do that, again, is because we're all saying at the same time, that we believe in Jesus. We're taking him publicly, as we have all, I've done all my life, hopefully many of you, uh, for a long time. Some of you, maybe this is new. This is a proclamation of who and what Jesus is, and we believe in him. So while they were eating, 
Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, which Gary said thank you for the, remember, we said the blessing. After a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat, this is my body. Father, thank you that we have access to you through the veil, which is the flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. His death in our place and his person going into your presence has secured for us access to your throne room of grace as believer priests. And we would never have that privilege. Father, we so often take it for granted that because of our high priest, we can draw near to your presence with him at your right hand, with your spirit, equipping our prayers, praying along with us. Father, thank you so much for the union, for the communion that we have with you through your Son, through your Spirit's work. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask uh, Ryan if you'll give thanks for the cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we pause to give thanks for what happened on that cross 2,000 years ago, our Lord Jesus Christ, the God-man, fully God, fully man, sinless perfection perfect obedience to your will, Heavenly Father, endured the cross and had disregarded the shame, Father, took on our sins and the sins of the whole world. Just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all men sinned, Father, even so through one act of righteousness, uh, we have been saved uh, through the um, work of our Lord Jesus on the cross. Those three hours where you poured out every sin, past, present, and future on him and judged him, Father, Um, the wages of sin were paid um, at Calvary's cross. Father, we we thank you uh, for our so great salvation. We thank you, Father, for the words, Tetelestai, it is finished. Truly, Father, our salvation has been paid for. It is not free, Father, but it is free to us because of what was paid at the cross on our Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, help us to concentrate on that reality. Uh, the reality of our salvation through Christ in his name. Amen. So what are we doing? What, why are we waiting? Well, we, we already said we're waiting for one another. But what do we do while we wait? There's no music. There's, no, there's, no, there's no, nothing to read. There's no handouts. What are we doing? We're remembering him. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So this is a moment of concentration and reflection on who and what Jesus is and what he's done. Let's wait until I've been served.
the cup of our salvation, which Christ drank from us, for us, is the payment for our sins, and it's bitter to Him. It's sweet to us, as I've often said. You think about Christmas, it's coming. We always celebrate it. The whole world knows that that's when the Christians say Jesus was born. It's the celebration, a commemoration of the birth of Christ. Whatever that means to the world, it means God took on flesh. But I want you to understand, as we sing joy to the world for Jesus Christ, it is the entrance of the Son of God into His instrument of suffering. You can't suffer for God in heaven. You only get to do it in this frame of life, in this fallen and cursed and broken world, in this dying body. And Jesus Christ entered into the human race without sin, and yet in this body he was able, in fact he had, to suffer for us. He entered into the flesh of man as the instrument, as the chamber of his torture and suffering, and he did it gladly because he loved you and he loved me. And that's why he gave himself for us. As the Apostle Paul says in Galatians, he gave himself for me, he loved me and gave himself for me. That's what we mean by the cup. Jesus asked his disciples, a couple of them, to go pray with him because he was having a moment of weakness. He was having hardship. He was heavily laden with the suffering that was coming, and he knew what was coming. Sit here, he says, while I go over there and pray. And they can't. They can't stay awake. They can't stay concentrated. And they can't make it real to themselves because they haven't, for whatever reason, been able to listen closely enough that he's going to suffer and he's going to rise from the dead. And as he's contemplating this suffering, Jesus Christ in his humanity says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And then as he is praying, he asks for his disciples to come alongside him. And then as he is praying to God, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. The suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ was for six hours of crucifixion and an unknown period of time of torture prior to the crucifixion. The physical sufferings and torture, the scourging, the beating with rods. He was skinned alive before he ever was told to carry a crossbeam. He was so weakened and in such shock in his physical condition as he walked toward the hill of the skull that he actually stumbled. And as you know, many of you, that he had to have help carrying his crossbeam The ultimate demonstration of shame for the Romans that a criminal was worthy of his punishment. And the only man who never deserved any hardship or judgment to be placed upon him, who only ever deserved accolades and glory and honor, bore our sins on the cross. And that's the cup. This cup could not pass from Jesus Christ if God was going to have his way and save us. And so knowing this, Jesus said, when he had taken a cup and given thanks... He gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Heavenly Father, thus we proclaim the death of the Lord Jesus Christ by your grace. We praise you for the privilege and honor of doing so. And now, Father, challenge us as we move forward from the Lord's table to proclaim the death and the eternal life through the Lord Jesus Christ as is our mission with this in mind. Father, let us live in communion with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you all stand with me now, we'll sing uh, hymn number 95, At the Cross, 9-5. Mm-hmm. <clears throat>
smiling, isn't it? Please be seated for the teaching of the Word. At this time, we will dismiss the children for Children's Church. We say we will dismiss you, but we will miss you. Did everyone see the announcement about the family work day? Could you show me if you saw the announcement? I appreciate all you volunteering to come out to the family work day. That's really... <laughs> you better laugh at that. That's, uh, that's really funny. <laughs> one humorist once said, I don't care who you are, that's funny. All right. Today we're in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. Learning about the Christian spiritual life and one of the most important passages on the walk by the Spirit that doesn't even mention the Holy Spirit at all in Romans chapter 6. I expect it to be a challenge for you. I expect it to be a blessing. And I expect it to uh, be something for you to learn today. Um, Why would we assemble just to hear my ideas? Well, one, one answer is, by the way, your presence here today is the answer to so much prayer. And I'm so thankful that you're here. I want you to know that. All of you are like, who's he talking to? All of you. I'm talking to all of you. Especially you. I mean, especially all of you. Now, why would we want to hear my special good ideas? Because I'm about to spend the whole time in Paul's ideas. The reason would be if I'm a prophet. And I think the prophets had their day. I believe there were prophets They spoke directly the word of God, but I'm not a prophet. I'm gifted as a pastor and teacher, and my uh, privilege is to take what the prophetic word we have from Paul and communicate it. It's a communication gift. And my understanding is if you will listen and concentrate and work through what Paul does in Romans 6 today, you will know how to walk in your thinking from who you are as a believer in Jesus Christ to what you should be doing, how you should live because of your so great salvation. To start, though, we have to understand what is that so great salvation. We just proclaimed it. If you believe that Jesus Christ died for your sins on the cross, what you're saying is that you didn't do anything to get God's favor in and of yourself. In fact, you're saying there was something wrong with you and you need someone else to do something for you. That's what we're saying. That is a radical statement. It is very offensive to hear that I need somebody to save me. But as we go together along in this little church with a big heart, You get to know me a little better. I get to know you a little better. We all become more and more aware that, yes, I need somebody to save me. And you needed someone to save you. We're broken. We don't often want to look at our sinfulness and our wickedness because it hurts us. Because somehow in there, there's still that spark of God consciousness where we know it's not right. And yet we're selfish. What I'm saying is we don't have it in ourselves to save ourselves. 
if there was something you and I could do to get God's favor and go to heaven as every religion but Christianity proposes, if there is anything we could do to save ourselves, then we just celebrated a vain crucifixion. Jesus didn't need to die for our sins if there's something we could do to account for the righteousness of God, but we can't. It's by grace through faith. And I hopefully have just summarized Romans chapters 1 through 5. It's by grace through faith and everyone needs the Savior. And, the, and, the, and if we go into chapter 4, it's only by faith in the pattern of, of Abraham. And if we go into chapter 5, it's because we are in Adam. And so we're sinners because we're in Adam and we need to become in Christ. And now you who are believers in Jesus Christ rejoice for you have been baptized into Christ. That's the argument Paul begins as he tells us how to live the Christian life in Romans 6. What shall we say then, he asks, are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. No, that's not how to think about it, even though our great poverty and need, our wickedness, our sin is a way of God showcasing his marvelous grace, but we should not continue in sin so that God will be more gracious. No, that's not how to think because you don't understand the consequences of your new birth. That's where he goes. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Now, when Paul talks about sin, he's talking about your sin nature, your inner temptation and villain that wants to promote and tempt you to disobey God, to ignore him. You think if the king's talking to you and you're doing this, that's not sinful? That sounds really weird when I do that. You should try it sometime. <clears throat> Not while I'm talking. Just kidding. <laughs> of course, we're sinful if we're willfully ignorant of God. The king is speaking. We're going to say, no, not so interested. That's American Christianity. How shall we who died to sin still live in sin? Did you know you died to your sin nature? That's the argument. I have died to sin because I have been united to Christ. And what unites me to Christ is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Jesus Christ have been baptized into his death? <clears throat> we do not believe that Paul is talking about water. In verse 3, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. What did the, uh, the last Old Testament prophet say about Jesus Christ? That's John the Baptist. I know he's in the New Testament. But he's the last of that old order. And he says, one is coming after me. I'm not worthy to untie his sandal, the, sand, the thong of his sandal. Why? Because he, I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's talking about this. Paul is talking about this, the baptism of God, the Holy Spirit. It's in Romans chapter 12. We've all been made in the past to drink of one spirit. The Holy Spirit unites us to Jesus Christ. Our identity in Christ is a product of this union, of this joining of me and you to Jesus Christ so that we all become members of one another in 1 Corinthians 12. Your core passage on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But watch what Paul does, well, the other core passage. What it, watch what he does with this baptism. Don't you know that if you're baptized into Christ, that's when you first believed in Jesus, it was something that God did, uh, uh, and, and he did many things when you first believed. Regeneration, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, baptism by the Holy Spirit into Christ. 
Okay, many things happened when you first believed in Jesus. You were born again. You were given a new spirit. Many things happened. But one, one thing, the baptism, united you to Jesus Christ in his past, present, and future. So that when you're united to Christ, you are now crucified with Christ. That's what it means. I died with him. Now, this is so vital to understand because this is what happened when I first believed in Jesus. This is my new identity. I'm now walking around as one identified with the past, present, future of Jesus. I am dead with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been raised with Jesus Christ. I've been ascended to the right hand of the Father and glorified in a resurrection body in position with Jesus Christ. Yet here we go. We're still dying. We're still in this broken body. We still deal with the sin nature. This is the core doctrine of positional truth that because of my initial faith in Jesus Christ and what God did in His grace consequent to that faith, now I have this union with Jesus Christ and all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized, unified with Him in His death. That's how you died. I died by virtue of the baptism of the Spirit. Therefore, We've been, buried with him. <clears throat> We've been buried with Him through baptism into death. <clears throat> I, never got, uh, I never felt the cold stone slab in the tomb of the rich man, <clears throat> right? I was never there 2,000 years ago. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The answer is, well, yes and no. If you mean physically, historically, no. If you mean in position by the baptism of the Spirit so that now I'm union, in union with Jesus, yes, I was buried with Christ in baptism, through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So I'm supposed to take the position of Jesus and His death to sin and His new life and resurrection and walking only to God, I'm supposed to take that as my position so that we too might walk in newness of life. Does this mean you don't have a sin nature? It doesn't. Paul is going to say you do have a sin nature and you're consequently responsible not to obey it because this goes from who are you? Who are you? Are you in Christ or not? If you're a believer in Jesus, the answer is yes, so believe it, reckon it so. Who are you to who do you serve? It goes from who are you to whom will you serve? And the answer needs to be obvious. I'm in Christ. I need to serve God the Father in Christ. Verse 5, for if we become united with Jesus in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 5 gives you a verb in the plural. Do you know what plural means? Or I'm sorry, in the future. Plural means many. Future means not now and not before, but later. Greek scholars have a, an ongoing battle about how, how Greek tenses work. I'm sad to say I know about this from much weary study. Not really sad about it, but it was weary study. I'm told it was a high price. Okay. The ongoing battle about Greek tenses is that um, they don't mean time frame. They don't mean when things happen. They mean that the description of the action. So you're like, well, that, uh, that's, that's very enlightening uh, for this Sunday morning, Pastor. But I want to say something about that. Except, and I don't believe that, but that's where the battle stands today. I'm of Fanning, not of Porter, whatever. But um, 
Interestingly, the future tense is very explicitly time-based. Even the people that don't believe in time frame in the indicative mood for present and aorist tense will say the future tense is future. It can only mean the future. And so my question for them is then how is the present and the, and the, other, and the past tense is not that way too, since the future tense is that way? And their answer is, well, we've done our models and we think that's this way. And I think you may be right. I don't get a lot of, of information from time frame in the indicative mood. And I'm going to quit talking about that, but I would point this out. It says, shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. It's the future tense. We will in the future be in the likeness of his resurrection. This is not saying that you in position are resurrected. We've already said that, and we're going to talk about that. This is saying you in the future are going to be resurrected just like him. It's the same thing he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. It's the promise of the real bodily physical resurrection to an eternal spiritual body which will inherit eternity with Jesus. The resurrection body is in view here. We will be in the future in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this now, that our old self, one translation, old man, was crucified with Christ. Not our old sin nature, our old self. The whole man, you, are in Christ. So you positionally are crucified with Christ. So this is the old self with all that that entails. Because here's the secret. The new birth means you have a new man, a new self. And that's what he's talking about, walking by the Spirit in the new life. That our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. That's the old sin nature. Your sin nature is referred to as the body of sin, and it doesn't mean the physical body. It's the way often Paul refers to the sin nature as sarks, the flesh. Here he uses the word soma of sin, the soma, the the body of sin, the flesh, the sinful flesh, the sinful body. These are synonyms, and I believe the explanation for the way that the the old nature is done away is the next statement, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. It doesn't mean, look, watch me, verse 6 does not mean that you don't have a sin nature. The sense in which it has been done away is that its power has been broken to call the shots. Not to tempt you, it's still powerful as a tempter, but you don't have to obey it. Before you had the new self, before you had the new life in Christ, before you had put on Christ at the baptism of the Spirit, when you first believed in Jesus, you had no choice but to obey the lusts of the sin nature because that was your enslavement in the old man but now you don't and that's that's a huge part of what it means to walk in new life for he who has died is freed from sin now i just want to i want you to soak this in for a second i want you to think about this with me because we're really not to what i want to talk about but it is preliminary to what i want to talk about if you think this has to mean that i don't have a sin nature anymore then there's a serious problem with uh, what you're believing from the Bible and your personal experience. And I agree, the Bible trumps experience. I'm just trying to say, based on what Paul's going to say from here on, and what John says, we have a sin nature. We're broken. We're not there yet. But positionally, we are there. In Christ, he has no sin. He died to sin. He's been resurrected to God. I'm in Christ in position with, with, with him living to God. But in my experience, I still have a problem. 
And so here, the problem isn't like it used to be. I don't have to be enslaved to the old nature, to the sin nature. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin, that principle of sin or the body of sin. For he who has died is freed from the sin nature. What I'm trying to say is that all through Romans 6, all through Romans 6, the reference to sin in the singular or the reference to the body of sin is the same thing. It's the sin nature. You don't have to obey it. Before you were enslaved to it, now you're not. And let me, let me demonstrate it as we move forward. It's a contextual reading. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death is no longer master over Him. So again, back, he refreshes the idea of my position in Christ, my death with Jesus Christ, my life with Christ. And so if verse 9 is true for Jesus, then I want to take it to myself. For the death that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now verse 10 is Paul's move, it's it's his hinge to take you into the life you're supposed to live. Jesus died to sin, I've died with Christ to sin. So now I'm not living to sin, I'm living for God. That's the new life in Christ. But it doesn't mean that I don't have a sin nature. It means that I don't have to walk in my sin nature. The Apostle Paul, same writer, Galatians 5, we looked at it a couple weeks ago. But I say walk by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, the sin nature. You don't have to obey your sin nature. You don't have to commit personal sins of commission where I do things he said not to do or omission where I don't do the things he told me to do. You don't have to walk by the flesh. You can walk in power God gave you to walk just as Jesus Christ is. That's walking worthy of our calling. And this is a moment-by-moment issue. This is Christian spirituality. I'm either walking by the Spirit or I'm not. This isn't a one-shot thing. We all want a one-shot thing, don't we? Can't we just get rid of the sin nature? It's, yeah, that's coming. When you die physically and you're absent from this tent and present with the Lord, you don't have a struggle with your sin nature anymore. No more struggle with the sin nature. But until then, you're in Romans 7'sville. It is hard. And it doesn't get easier because you get more holy. I'm just waiting around until this sin nature pressure isn't there anymore and then I'll, then I'll serve. You'll never serve. That's not the, that's not the, the, the deal. We aren't re- being relieved of the pressure. We're being strengthened where we don't have to submit to it. But what you have to do with verses 1 through 10 is say, if it happened to Jesus, then I'm in Christ. It, it's my identity too. And that introduces identity. Who are you? Until you and I can, without batting an eyelash, say for me to live as Christ and to die as gain, Until we can say the life I'm now living, I live by faith in him who died for me and it's Christ who's living in me. Until we really let go of our claim on our lives and say, God, it's your life. You don't really understand what I mean by walking in this new life. There is no one that you can ever think of that would be more worthy of emulation, of your copying, of your imitation. There's no one, there's no one, even uh, a rock and roll singer, even a sports athlete, even if you're really big on your family and, and, and family members that you admire, there's no one worthy of our adoration and admiration like Jesus Christ. 
And for you to be told that when you first believed, you didn't understand all this when you first believed. You first believed the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaimed here with the communion table. You first believed in Jesus that the most important person in all the universe, the most important human who ever lived, is now your new identity. There's no lottery you could win. There's no, there's no good news you could receive that could trump the fact that you are in Christ. And that privilege, we just, oh, you know, so great salvation. We neglect it. We don't think about our position. We don't think about how awesome it is that the most important human being in all the universe for all eternity is in us. And he's my identity and I am in Christ. We don't think about it, but if we'll spend some time in Romans, we will be thinking about it. Stack your, use this as a problem solver sometimes, right? Think about your position in Christ. Never heard that counted as a problem solving device, but think about it. Think about who you are. Who are you? You're in Christ. The moment you believed you're in Christ, what does that compare to your problems you've got with people at work? I'll show up late just so I don't have to talk to so-and-so in the parking lot. I'd rather take the hit. Deal with that person. You believe that? All the things we're dealing with in life, all the struggles, all the hardships, all the way to the, to the horror of our own personal deaths, that we're going to die. I love Ryan, I love Ryan Baker, the way he works it in. I've challenged him before um, we started this uh, working together Sunday morning thing, where, um, where Ryan finds a way to say we're all going to die, uh, at least once in his message first hour. And, uh, and I, it's, it's so helpful. Um, now, it matters how you say we're all going to die. If you say it with, you know, biting your fingernails in a frenzy, that kind of portrays the wrong uh, message. And so Ryan's very, you know, hey, we're all going to die. Hope you ever, everyone knows that. And I'll, I'm always reminded that we're all going to die. And um, <laughs> it's good to think about. We are. This physical life is a very short uh, blip on the radar of eternity. I mean, it's very, a very short run of suffering for the Lord Jesus and serving him in a broken body in a broken, with a broken um, sin nature um, that we're experiencing victory over. It's a, it's a short run you have to deal with this suffering. But Jesus died to sin once for all, and he lives to God. And so, verse 11, even so, now the first command... The Apostle Paul issues in the passage. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Spoiler alert, you're now responsible to obey the command that we've, we've become, uh, we've, we've understood. You were responsible beforehand, but now, I mean, for 2,000 years, the church has been responsible to consider ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. It's not a suggestion, it's a command. Reckon this so. Have you ever uh, been counseling together with someone who's really struggling? Some of you are like, no, never. Um, have you ever talked to someone who's really hurting and their, 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 their spiritual life is all askew? They're just, out, they're, they're, they're just demoralized and compromised. And you want to help them, and so you pray with them, and you, hey, you, ask, you start by asking questions. Don't start rendering judgments on people's lives. You're not their judge. But you do come alongside to bring encouragement, to suggest uh, some questions that might be helpful. You know, I struggle with this too, and we're going to go Second Corinthians 1, and the encouragement I've received maybe I can pass on. And, you know, approach someone with humility. But as you go to someone, have you ever noticed that when there's someone is down or they're defeated by sin, that uh, that's where the conversation goes and that's where that tries to stay very often. Oh, the devil's strong. I can't beat him. I'm stuck in this thing. I can't get out of it. 
The triumph of sin is this, I keep hearing it, it's the, this mantra among Christians that don't really know the scriptures very well. Oh, the sin is powerful, the devil's powerful. What they mean is that I don't want to smoke weed anymore, but I do. That's what they mean. The devil's powerful. I'm, I'm, I'm back to drinking and I don't want to drink, but I keep doing it. And so they're, they're, they're blaming the devil very often for their sin. And when you get down to it, it's like the devil, it's you, your sin nature is, is calling for this self-destruction and you're submitting to it. You're giving in to this temptation, just temptation. Now, I, pastor, did you just say it's just temptation? Paul says you haven't yet, restri- you haven't yet um, I'm sorry, Hebrews says you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding blood against the temptation of your flesh. Okay, so temptation hurts. We're not going to say it's just temptation, but that's what we're dealing with is the sin nature. And so the person basically wants to keep sinning. So they blame the devil or their sin nature, and then I can't help it. I'm stuck. It's my sin nature. Or that's the refined, the origin is it's the devil. The devil made me do it. You talk to people. Talk to people. The guy standing out there with asking for work has probably very often been evangelized once or twice this week. In America, even in Connecticut, even in Connecticut, someone has shared the gospel with that guy once or twice probably this week. If you find a Christian among that group, you're going to hear about the devil getting them. When you deal with the poor in America, in, in, in eastern Connecticut, in the towns, you're going to deal with the devil is out to get me. And you should take someone if they would like to. Hey, can I show you a a suggestion that might give you some joy? Can I show you something that might help you out with that? Take them to this verse. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ if you have him. Now, notice the verse says you have to think it. You have to consider it. Consider yourselves to be dead. It's a command. And that's a reasoning word. It's a, it's a, it, I'm told, and so now I have to choose to believe it so. And it's a constant responsibility. It's this ongoing responsibility to consider myself dead to sin. If we would think of this as the baseline of our lives, that I'm in Christ and that I'm dead to sin, I don't have to obey its lusts, that, that would change a lot about how we deal with personal sin, I'm convinced. Therefore, second command, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Okay, I won't let it reign the way you don't let the sin be the king. Bazaluo, to reign like a king. The way you stop it from reigning is that you don't obey its lusts. The way I don't let it reign in my mortal body is when it comes to me with the lust, I don't say yes and use my volition to commit a sin. I say no. Stop it, says Bob Newhart. Don't do it. Whatever it is, don't do it. Gee, this is easy. I I thought we were going to learn something hard today. Okay, so we don't sin. Got it. (laughs) Thanks. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. You see how we went from a more general statement don't let it rule you by obeying its lusts to don't let it, don't present your body parts as instruments of, righteous, of, of unrighteousness or wickedness to sin. So this is a specific, a, a more specific statement. Paul knows he was real general there. So verse 12 is a command in general not to let it rule. 
Verse 13 says, and the way you would let it rule is you would say, here I am, sin nature. What would you have me do? What will my members be used to do? Now, the members, what are the members? It's your body. It's the most valuable piece of property you own that can be physically uh, addressed. The most valuable piece of physical material you own is your physical body, right? Think about it. How much, how much would you pay to have uh, your, your right hand work if it's, if it's not working? You know, what's, what's your dollar figure on how much can you sell me one of your, one of your feet for? Uh, I don't believe I could have name a dollar for that. I need my feet, right? Right? It's valuable. There's nothing more valuable than your body. Paul says, use it for God. Don't use your body for unrighteousness. What are some members that we might say we weren't thinking about? I don't want to use my hands to do bad things. Don't hit my brother, right? Tell the little kids. What are some other body parts? Let's keep it um, to those that are visible when we're fully clothed. That we don't think about, that we submit to unrighteousness without even thinking about it and find ourselves tempted like we wouldn't need to be eyeballs oh do you need to control your eyes control your eyes so that they don't see things that would distract you gentlemen from this awareness and constant assumption that you belong to jesus christ that you are actually dead to sin and alive in christ your tongue what are you saying what are you saying with your mouth What's running the tongue and the eyes physically? Now, you can't see it fully clothed, but it's up here. It's your brain. That's your body. What are you using your brain for? What are you thinking? Don't go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is what verse, uh, verse 13, the second command is the first positive affirmative command since consider. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ and present yourselves to God and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Based on my position, now I'm going to walk as I submit myself to God. Present. Verse 14 says, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now I wonder, um, how many words for rulership, submission, obedience, command, those kinds of things, did we just encounter? Were you watching? That's something to go watch at home. Now, the key passage I want you to zoom in on, we just read through it, is Romans 6, verses 11 through 14. How many different ways does Paul reference rulership, authority, command, and what one does with authority if you're under it? That is the concept being addressed. That's why the King James translator said yield for present because there is a submission inherent in yielding. I wouldn't translate it yield, but that's what they did. And uh, great theologians of our past have made a much, uh, have made a great deal of the word yield. Men like C.I. Schofield, Lewis Berry Chafer, Dwight Pentecost, the idea of yieldedness is what we're talking about, and this really is the subject of how you can be successful. What are you submitting to? I'm going to show you, as we walk through this in a little bit more detail, what you submit yourself to is what determines who you are and what you do, what you do with your life. 
what you submit yourself to. And here's the other thought that you don't tend to think. Everybody is submitting to someone. The guy that said, I'm the master of my own soul, I'm, I'm steering my own ship, I'm the skipper, he's submitting to someone. It's to sin. He's submitting himself to his sin nature. This is why it's really dangerous to tell someone to trust in yourself. Well, let's, cl- let's clarify what you yourself are. What do you mean yourself? Do you mean your lusts? You aren't your lusts, but without Christ, without the Spirit, you don't have an option about that. So let's look at this in some detail. Here's my translation. Likewise you. Verse 11 pulls from verse 10. If this is true of Jesus, you reckon this to be true of yourself. Likewise also you. And it's very emphatic what he does. What he does with you. Some of you are like, this is where Pastor Dave goes off the rails. He starts telling us stuff in detail. We don't want the detail. Can't we hear a story? I once had a little dog. named Moses. We named him Moses because we never thought we were going to name a child Moses. We were right. If your name is Moses, or if you have a friend named Moses, well, that's different. But, and I've known especially Hispanic people named Moises, but I never knew any, anyone named Moses. I had a friend named Moki, that's Hawaiian Moses. But anyway, uh, Moses was a great dog. He was a, uh, a, a rescue um, and the, just the happiest dog ever. He was a, um, a border collie. And he, he lasted in the Roseland household of me and Krista and the other dogs uh, back in Fort Hood. He lasted, I think, in our family for what, about a month? He made it about a month. And uh, then he met his tragic end uh, in the street from a car that was rushing by uh, in the school zone where we lived. <laughs> but he was awesome. I loved Moses. He was very uh, excited. He was always excited and very um, energetic. And what strikes me about uh, working dogs like Border Collies is they need, you've probably been told, they need somebody to put them to work. They need to be given a task. They need to be given uh, so, something or they, or they just lose it. And, um, and we didn't have anything for him to herd we did take him walking. We did run him around. Um, and and when, when we paid attention to this guy, he was pretty much grown when we got him. He was really good about wanting to please us. We could tell that he wanted us to put him to work. And he was just this scrappy little dog. And you could probably take any dog you've ever had if you're a dog person. And even if you're not, you have to reluctantly admit they're this way. Dogs that are connected to you, once they've got that connection, they want to please you. They want to serve you. They want to um, make you happy, whatever that takes. And different breeds, by how they're genetically aligned, they've got different ways they think that's supposed to happen. Like we have a dog now that if you ring the doorbell, don't do that. <laughs> if you ring the doorbell, we have a dog that thinks it's his job to destroy everyone's eardrums. Just so we're all sure that he's just a spaz about the doorbell. Right? But he's trying to please us, and I am, I am glad to know. I mean, if I was deaf, I'd probably feel the vibrations through the air of this dog bark. I'm glad to know someone's at the door, but I did want to point out to him that it's kind of redundant. We heard the bell. And so, but, but what I'm saying is that dogs are a great illustration of what we're talking about here because they want to please you, 
and especially working dogs, they've been bred for a working purpose, and they're awesome at it. A border collie is the best herding dog to some people. He's a great sheep herding dog, and that's what he does, and he wants to do that, and he wants to be, uh, to be awesome at it, and he just wants to put me in there, let me get to work. And that's the attitude the Apostle Paul is actually suggesting here when he says, take what you know about Jesus, his death in chapter 6, verse 10, and then recognize that for yourself. So he says in verse 11, back to our passage, likewise, also you, by the way, that was a, a commercial break for your brain. Now get back to work. Likewise, you go on considering yourselves. I, I brought out the uh, present uh, uh, action, the present internal portrayal or or aspect of this verb, logizomai, go on considering yourselves on the one hand to be dead to sin, men on the one hand to be dead to sin, but on the other hand, alive to God and Christ Jesus our Lord. Both of these statements, both of these statements are commands for how we're to think of ourselves. The way a Christian views himself is a matter of obedience to God. He says, think of yourself this way and not this way. It's a command. I can't control what I think of myself. God thinks differently. Consider this about yourself. Likewise also you, verse 10 has Jesus. Now likewise you, you are adopting Jesus as your model because you're in Christ as your position. And then we have a prescription for self-image. On the one hand, I'm dead to sin, but on the other hand, I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The big verb here, logizomai, L-O-G-I-Z-O-M-A-I is the word, and it's the first command the Apostle Paul issues in Romans chapter 6, the spiritual life section of Romans 6 through 8. Consider, think this way. We're told to think. He doesn't say feel this way. He doesn't say sing 16 songs until you really feel it and then you let it go. That's That's not what he's talking about. He says this is an ongoing responsibility to think a certain way. I'm dead to sin, my sin nature, but I'm alive to God in Christ Jesus. I would point out the comparison that Paul sets up. If you look at Romans 6.10, verses 6.11, it's right there. He died to sin once for all, you're dead to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God, but you're alive to God. It's exactly parallel the way Paul does 6.10 and 6.11. So for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Jesus died to sin once for all. Now I'm dead to sin. Jesus lives to God. Now I live to God. It's worth emphasizing because it's not our default so often, but it needs to be. Well, you know, I've still got a sin nature, so I just, I did that. That's, that's abnormal. That's abnormal to just say, well, you know, I'm saved. I'm saved. I'll, I'll be Jesus paid for it. Not, but if you do commit personal sin, you need to do that. You need to say, Jesus paid for that sin, and you need to confess it. But we don't look at sin like, well, we're just going to sin. We look at sin like that's an abnormal thing that I'm submitting to that I don't need to. Verse 12, the second command. He says, therefore, sin, literally, third, third imperative is not to rule. Bazilua, to rule as king in your mortal body. You got two different words for rulership in the passage. This one is the word for kingly rule. It's not to rule like a king. No, it's, they're synonyms. I'm just saying, bring out the color here. Baziluo from Baziluon, the kingdom, that's a really important word in the Greek. 
So the sin is not to reign in your mortal body. And I said, how does it reign in my mortal body? So that you obey it in its lusts. Literally, so that you obey your sin in its lusts. That's what it says in Greek in every, every manuscript tradition. I don't know why they paraphrase it. So that you not obey it, your sin nature, in its lusts. Lust is where you know the thing is that you're not supposed to do and you feel like doing it anyway. I shouldn't tell you, but here goes. That's lust. And then when we choose to submit to it, when we choose to carry forth that act of lust, it becomes a sin. Basileuo, B-A-S-I-L-E-U-O. Now I'm going to make the argument that when we get to verse 13, you're supposed to submit yourself to God. That's what present means, is a personal submission of will to the other. I'm going to argue that, that that's what it means to walk by the Spirit or be filled by the Spirit. Because, well, Chafer taught me to, and Pentecost taught me to, and Schofield, I checked him and he thinks the same thing. But also, because of all these words for rulership and authority and command and governance, you want to have Christian self-control, you need the fruit of the Spirit which is self-control. You need God to bring it forth in you, and that's going to require a submission. Our obedience establishes the rulership of the one we obey. He's going to say it later in the chapter more explicitly, but it's right here in verse 12. The way sin rules in you as a king is that you, you fulfill its lust, that you do what it wants. You obey its lusts. Verse 13a, the third command, he gets more specific. Do not go on presenting your members as instruments of we- or weapons of unrighteousness to sin. Do not continue in a, in a continuous portrayal of just this, this way of life, presenting your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness to sin. What's that word for present? It's paristemi. It's the most important verb in the passage, I believe, for the spiritual life. P-A-R-I-S-T-E-M-I, paristemi. It's a compound word. I'm going to, I'm going to histame right here. Standing, histame. Tithame sounds similar. It's hard to tell them apart sometimes in Greek. But tithame, I'm going to tithame this pen. I just stood it here or set it here. Tithame, to set or place. This word is to stand, almost like abide, to stay put. Paristame is to stay with to stand with or to present, to put before. And so do not go on presenting your members as hopla, hopla of unrighteousness to sin. Has anyone ever heard the word hopla? Hopla in Greek? Sound familiar to anything? Hopla? What's that? What have I got a base of right here? Greek what? Hopla. Come on, people, let's read some encyclopedias. This is, this is a hoplite. These are Greek hoplites. That's what you call foot soldiers, infantrymen in Greek, in the Greek world. This is a, a Spartan vase, I think. It looks pretty Spartan, doesn't it? What are these guys doing? They're hoplites. Why are they called hoplites? Because they're the men that wield the hopla. And what are the hopla? They're those spears and shields. They're the weapons of their warfare. That's the word here, hopla. Do not go on presenting your members as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness to sin. The idea here is that the sin nature is not to use your body as its tool. Now, I've heard that the sin nature is the body. It's not. That's not what he's talking about because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6. Don't do that. Don't do the pagan uh, dualism of body bad, spirit good. 
we do have a sin nature problem. It does have to do with our body, but our body isn't our sin nature. You serve God with your body, and you don't serve sin with your body, and there's a quarrel between, a war between your sin nature and God. Don't go on presenting your members as instruments or weapons of unrighteousness to sin. The sin nature is not to use your body as a tool, but fourth command is our submission. But present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as weapons, instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. That's what we started with. You are in Christ from your baptism. So you reckon yourself to be dead to sin and risen with Christ. So you're alive from the dead. That's the idea. That's your new life. That's how you think of yourself. Don't think of yourself, well, I'm so plagued with my sin nature. No, you need to submit to the spirit, but you are first to reckon that you are alive in Christ and dead to your sin nature. Present yourselves to God as alive from the dead and your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. When you say that my body now is for your service, I hope you can understand the inherent submission of parastami, that you're submitting, presenting yourself to God. I've had someone push back on this. Well, what are you talking about submit to the Holy Spirit? Why, where in the Bible does it say that? Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Present yourselves to God as a life from the dead, your members as instruments or weapons of righteousness to God. But pastor, it doesn't say the Holy Spirit. Okay, let's get some basic theology down. We have one God who exists eternally as three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three persons share one divine essence if you think you're supposed to not submit to one of the three persons of the Trinity who share the sovereignty of div- divinity, then you've misunderstood the nature of God. This is like people that say, well, I'm just going to use the Spirit. I'm going to use the power of the Spirit on this one. Nope. It doesn't say present yourself the Spirit for your use with your tools. It says you present yourself to God and you present your members as instruments of righteousness. Now, this is so critical. Based on verse 11, who I am in Christ, now I have what I do. We had a couple things I don't do. What do I do? I submit myself to God for his purposes. Have you done this? I would point out the aorist tense here. The aorist tense doesn't mean that it's a one-time event. It doesn't mean that it's a punctiliar action. You don't submit one time. That's not what it means. It's taking a general command and making it the precept. Whenever I need to reconnect and think through, I need to actually submit to God here, do it. But for some of you, there's about to be the first time. Is this your first time to think this through? That God, you have your way, not my will, but your will be done. Is this maybe the first time you've considered my life isn't my own and the real God who really made me and really loves me and really sent his son for me wants me to actually submit myself to him? 
Is this the first time that you've thought about really having a spiritual life and walking in the power that God has commanded you to walk? In Ephesians 5, 18, it's not a suggestion. He says, be filled by the Spirit. You must, it is a command to let the Spirit of God have His way. Explanation in verse 14, for sin will not rule, kuriao, kuriuo, sorry. It will not rule as Lord over you, for you're not under the administration of law, but under the administration of grace. We could talk a lot more about these things for the next hour, and instead we're going we're gonna to break now until next time. But I challenge you to read Romans 6 until the end in verse 23. Read what follows. He goes through this whole thing about who you submit to. That's the one you're enslaved to. If you think that you're running your life, you understand you are submitting to your sin nature. But don't we have to make plans? Yes, and they're always contingent. Don't I have to make decisions? I mean, I don't know what the Bible says about, you know, the the following things. Right. But you need to humble yourself before God. Parallel passage, 1 Peter 5. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he'll promote you or exalt you at the proper time, casting all your cares on him, for he cares for you. Spirituality, the Christian life, is a constant attention to who you are because of who God is and what he's done. And, and we, we keep both, the, I'm not God, but I am dead to sin and alive to God. If we'll, if we'll reckon that, if we'll consider that, if we'll logizomai or, or consider this to be so, and then present ourselves to God for his purposes as a constant attitude you will find yourself in common with jesus christ if it be thy will let this cup pass from me yet not as i will but your will be done the submission of my desires my preferences my intentions all those things to god is christian spirituality it is the baseline attitude maybe some of you are thinking uh we're not dealing with sin properly we haven't confessed our sins So how can we really be spiritual? I want to challenge you that this directly impinges on sin. When Paul says, present yourselves to God, it's in the imperative mood. When we disobey a command of God, what do we call that? It's a personal sin. If you fail to submit to the sovereign of the universe and you instead revolt against him, because those are the two options, what do we call that rebellion against God? that is the failure to submit to God, what do we call that? Sin. This is the other side of the coin of personal sin. It's just the general attitude. There's no way to humble yourself, I'm sorry, to to be righteous before God in terms of walking in the Spirit and not submitting to Him because it's just arrogance. If that last thought is new, think it, think about it. How can you be be not arrogant and yet not submitting to God? There is no middle ground. There is no middle way. Some of you need to actually just let it go. Tell him about the arrogance problem and say, God, you have your way. In fact, all of us need to do that at least every morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for eternal life. The eternal life we enjoy now. That as we walk in dependence upon you and your spirit, as we um, humble ourselves before you, as we present our members as instruments of righteousness for you, Father, that we can truly enjoy the spiritual assets and resources you've prepared for us. And thank you for more, Father, that it's not about our enjoyment. You have a mission for us to accomplish 
we'll be useless at it unless we submit ourselves for your service. Father, as we do that, reward us with success. Give us the words to say and let us see the, the, the joy of someone coming to know Jesus Christ. Let us see the riches of your grace and, and new encounters for we know you've kept us in this life to be on mission. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Our closing hymn this morning, hymn number 408, 408, I Surrender All. If you all please stand with me. We haven't sung this one for a long time, but we have sung it, and it's a beautiful hymn.